In my first conversation with Nathan Shearer last year, the lasting impression he made was, man, that guy knows his numbers. He knew his metrics, performance and wellness-based back to front. Any question I asked about previous performance or mishaps, he could answer and identify what had contributed to X result. This meant that our consultations were more succinct, impactful and lasting while we worked together to formulate a nutrition, wellness and race nutrition or hydration plan. As a fellow data nerd, I thoroughly enjoyed today's conversation you're about to hear. We set out with the purpose to help share Nathan's story and how data and metrics have paved his journey from age group to professional triathlete. Very successfully, I might add. His athletic highlights span from age group Ironman world champion for the 25-29 age group in 2016. And since in his professional career, fifth place at Ironman Western Australia 2017, and most recently sixth place at Ironman New Zealand in a PB time of eight hours and 18 minutes. What also contributes to Nathan's success is the changes he's made to his nutrition and metabolic efficiency along the way, while also adopting an LCHF lifestyle. I have no doubt you're gonna learn a lot from this one. You've done all the right things. You've followed the program, but you're tired and the results are hard to come by. You know there has to be a better way. Perhaps you're struggling to put the puzzle pieces together from training, recovery, nutrition, gut health, to hormone health and optimal wellness. Each season on Healing Grumpy Athletes podcast, your host, Katie Pettuccini from Holistic Endurance, will help put the puzzle pieces together and ensure you can achieve and express your athletic potential holistically. Katie is a self-confessed hormone nerd, endurance coach, wellness advocate, and triathlete, here to educate, inspire, and distill wisdom in an effort to shift up endurance norms. Grab yourself an almond latte, a herbal tea, or perhaps a red wine to focus your mind and enjoy the show. Hey crew, welcome back to Healing the Grumpy Athletes podcast. I have Nathan Shearer, a professional athlete and coach on the show, and we are going to nerd out on the numbers, talk about data and transitioning to a professional life, and also discuss his LCHF or low carb, high fat transition as a professional athlete. So welcome, Nath. Thanks, Katie. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Always fun. It is fun. I think this is yeah. going to be a very valuable conversation and should preface that it will be valuable for both the data nerd and the complete newbie to data and numbers approach to performance. We're going to try and cover all those elements, but mostly I think Nathan's story is quite interesting and a lot of people can learn from it and more than that he's been able to document it all so let's start from your when your age group performances started to really peak to 15 to 16 to now and what that data looked like and how you used it to improve your performance over the years uh okay so um i guess we'll start with 2015 i that was my second Ironman I did at Melbourne in March of that year. Um, my first Ironman had been Melbourne the year before, and that one was purely just to, uh, you know, see what the distance was like. Main goal was to just enjoy myself and not get 
scared off by the distance by um, doing something silly and having a bad experience. Uh, so 2015 became about qualifying for Kona and uh, going into an Ironman with the purpose of uh, being at the pointy end of my age group and, and trying to get the qualification. Um, so with that, I moved to Melbourne at the start of 2015 and when I moved, I took over my own coaching. So I started coaching myself um, initially into my race at Melbourne, uh, which didn't go fully to plan in terms of performance, but it went to plan in terms of qualifying. I managed to come third. I qualified for Kona, and that was the main goal. Um, so, yeah, once once I got through that, I, I sort of focused and centered my whole year around what I was going to do for Kona and how I was going to change my approach. Um, and it's and this is where it's interesting. I've got all of this in in Training Peaks, and I've had it uh, like like we touched on. I've I've had data in there since um, probably my first year of triathlon, I think. Which was 2013. Uh, is that right? uh 2000 yeah probably I, I think i probably got it um in 2014 I, I don't think i would have had it that very first year because i only really started it in the back end of 2013 actually doing triathlon and having a serious go at it mm. um so probably i got it i think after that after that melbourne race actually in 2014 yeah, okay. The, after the first one. Uh, and so when you say of, the performance elements didn't come together for that Ironman Melbourne in 2015, but you qualified, yep. what, what elements were missing? So I think uh, a, a, a huge part of, of my learning over that first 18 months to two years came from making mistakes and making mistakes around pacing and how to actually execute uh, over that distance so um, I think a big uh, pitfall I guess for me was that I developed because I was so new to the sport I had no background in any of of the disciplines so never swam I, had, I didn't own a bike before I started um, I'd run a little bit just that was kind of the thing that got me into it initially uh, but nothing serious and, and never data-driven. So um, I had this massive bell curve of improvement, and so every race I was like, I don't actually know what my limits are. And that was partly not understanding and having concrete data to go on, not having a coach who understood data. You know, I was self-coaching. I was learning all the time. Mm. Um, so every race was about finding the limits and you know maybe pushing them a little far and, and seeing what happens so I actually think I over overbiked mm -hmm. um, relative to my ability and then the run became an absolute death march uh, from about 20 oh no probably about 18 kilometers in um, just same thing probably got a little bit uh, a little bit ahead of myself in in how I approach the race mentally in terms of trying to actually race an Ironman, which for anyone who's done one knows that's kind of an oxymoron to say, even as a professional, uh, it's always a race against yourself first 
uh, not against anybody else. And um, yeah, I took I went out way too fast on the on the run after riding probably a little bit hard, and paid the price for the last twenty five k, and it sucked. It was horrible. Which is um, all too common, and I can certainly see why you have invested so much in learning about the data approach because the numbers make sense. The numbers are based on evidence, and you can formulate a better plan rather than go, oh, I wonder if I can do this. I'll push the limit and hope for the best. Yeah, a hundred percent, and um, that's the probably. I would have to say the only bad Ironman race I've had, really, you know, properly bad. And the only time I've actually fallen apart Mm. on the run to a fair degree. Uh, I haven't run anywhere near as slow as that since. Um, And, yeah, you know, it sparked. I just wanted to learn more. I was was interested to know why uh, that had happened and what could I and what steps could I take to, to stop that happening again. Yeah, so what were the key learnings between that Melbourne and your first Kona? Uh, so I started using training peaks quite a lot more, um, started logging all my training, uh, looking at the data and getting um, just some concrete numbers around where my thresholds were and what was going to be realistic for an Ironman. Uh, so, you know, that, that became um, not just having a power meter on my bike, but actually understanding how to use it and finding a functional threshold for, for power output, what that meant in relation to heart rate um, and where my heart rate zones sat and how they differed from mm. bike to run. Which is an uh, important point. So what, at the, um, two questions. What was your go-to resource at that time to learn about utilizing your power meter uh, training peaks and training peaks blogs all their articles uh, yeah articles um i think a lot of the learning i went through and it's interesting that you know for someone who has more or less i've got my whole career on training peaks i've got a, a handwritten diary in front of me that covers my entire build-up to Kona and what I was doing every week and and how I was progressing Mm. my key sessions so I've got a page in front of me that's 100 days to Kona so 14 weeks what's my goal for that week uh, in terms of my key sessions and it was four by ten minutes at 265 watts on the bike so that probably represented uh, probably 80 80% of threshold like the very upper limit of what uh, a pro can hold for an Ironman say is is 80% roughly if we will probably touch on intensity factor later but um, and then basically I just repeated I went through this very very controlled block for 16 weeks where I more or less repeated the exact same key sessions every week for 16 weeks or every few weeks and and was able to see just how um how i was tracking basically numbers were all you know i'd get quicker i'd get higher power outputs on the same courses in the same session um than maybe what i'd done four weeks earlier 
Which uh, is so good to reflect on. And a lot of athletes shy away from repetition and they're like, I'm bored, I want variety. But yeah, yeah. there's so much value in being able to benchmark yourself against yourself from yeah. four weeks prior. And I think it's just a matter of an athlete reframing and, and seeing that set as an excitement or an opportunity. It's like, all right, last week in those 10-minute efforts, I averaged 270 watts. I'm going yeah. for 272, 275 this week. And you, you create that environment to be motivated rather than just putting this fake motivation because it's a new and shiny session it's like buying totally. a, a new kit it's like it doesn't yeah. make you better <laughs> yeah and I, I think it also comes back to um you know and, and this is obviously i had to but and that's because i was coaching myself but taking responsibility for your training yeah and being responsible for what you're actually doing and what you're setting out to achieve i think some people get stuck in the um, in bad the bad habit, I would say, of, of just getting their program and doing it blindly mm. and not really understanding or not taking any time to understand why or and I'm what sure, the goal it should be of this. Yeah, I'm sure now um, even as a coached athlete, you still do that. Oh, for sure. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and it applies for age groupers as well. This isn't just about professionals. No, no, no. This yeah. applies to, to everybody. I yeah. think it's like something that... Um, just being present or being mindful, you know, actually thinking about what you're doing and where it's leading. And, you know, when you do it this way and you have concrete data sets that you can go back to and constantly revisit because you're repeating it every week, two weeks, month, whatever it is, um, that's incredibly motivating because you can see your improvement. See the results, yeah. Exactly, yeah. Yeah. And that's the thing, I think, with um, long course racing, um, with opposed to sprint you're not constantly getting benchmarked against yourself in a race environment and so those yeah. functional tests in training uh, and benchmarking particular sets gives you a performance metric to know how you're progressing and so when someone's yeah. shifting from short course to long course i think that's a great thing to note because it can be like oh i don't know how i'm going and i used to have races that told me how i was going but yeah. this way you can get it yeah in training yeah. Out of curiosity, what FTP or functional threshold power test protocol do you utilise? Uh, so it's changed. I've, I've done nearly all of them, I would say. So for a long time, it was a 20-minute, um, you know, the, the standard test most people would have heard of or done, uh, where you do some a warm-up, some pick-up efforts, 30 seconds, five-minute clearing effort that's quite a bit above uh, your threshold and should be closer to your VO2 max. So what you could, you, what basically your maximum effort for five minutes. Uh, a 10 minute uh, clear out where you just spin very easily and then 20 minutes as hard as you can go for, for 20 minutes. Um, and I've, I've done that and repeated that test many, many times since I started. Uh, I've done it both on the trainer and outside and um, there is generally a slight difference and particularly when I wasn't uh, using using a trainer that much I'd see a bigger difference than yeah, what I do now as someone who trains on a kicker or on an indoor trainer nearly exclusively so I'm much better at, at riding on one because I do it so often mm. um, and then I've done two by eight minute test which uh, is a little different. It's probably better suited to more experienced 
athletes or cyclists because um, you need to be able to repeat eight-minute efforts back-to-back and they need to be very similar in terms of output. Mm. If you go way too hard in the first one, your second one will suck and it won't give you a a clear indication of what potentially what threshold is. Um, And then recent, like in the last probably 12, 18 months, I've done uh, VO2 step tests in a lab uh, in a lab setting, so um, you know I have very concrete data on what my threshold is now, uh, and we actually found that that 20-minute field test uh, protocol got us very close to what a VO2 max test got anyway. So okay. um, both are good. I think you know if you can do it in a, a lab setting in a VO2 test in a like controlled environment, it's it's obviously going to be um, the best outcome and you'll have a very clear idea but uh, that 20 minute field test is pretty pretty good if you um, if you execute it well yeah that's the key I'll link exactly listeners to some resources for lab testing but also that protocol if they're if they're yeah. not familiar with that for sure yeah. um, so you went into Kona with more data and more of a plan yep so you've got your wattage and your FTP numbers. How did you formulate particularly your bike pacing so you didn't overbike again? Um, so I had I had good uh, data from from the races that I've done. So from the Ironmans that I'd I'd raced uh, both Melbournes. Um, I think I held uh, a little like like probably twenty watts. 25 watts more from one year to the next so so more the following year but I obviously ran a fair bit slower mm. um, so I had that data there and I had a pretty good idea of what my threshold was and it was through training peaks that I I got a better idea or a better sense of what was actually achievable in terms of how hard could I ride uh, for 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 best part of five hours and still run run well um and not not leave or finish my race when i get off the bike in t2 mm. uh so i think i, I utilize training peaks i utilize my old data and i think i just had a better and clearer plan of how i was actually going to ride the course in hawaii yeah um and i definitely got better the second time i went so i still made mistakes the first year uh, I definitely rode too hard in the first half of the bike. Um, I got carried away trying or being quite paranoid of getting a drafting penalty mm. in the first half. Basically, the first 40K is very, very congested out of town and onto the highway. Um, so I, I, I rode probably or oh, definitely too hard in that first 60 to 90K and then... Um, after I turned around and came back down from Harvey, so about at about 120k mark, I just I fell apart. My power dropped, heart rate uh, maybe increased a little bit, and that power to heart rate um, decoupling got quite quite pronounced, um, which is just a sign that it overridden basically. Yeah. Uh, so I made a similar mistake to what I'd made <laughs> earlier that year. So there's a great um, analysis of your 2000 and. 16 Kona on training peaks where it explains that you rode to an intensity factor of 0.7 which we'll explain shortly what was your intensity factor the year before 
Oh, good question. I it thought you would know that off by heart. Come on. It's definitely lower than that. Okay. Um, I think my average, so my average power in 2016 would have been around 260 roughly. My average power in 2015 dropped down under 240, but I rode the first 100K or 120K at 260. Yeah. Um, so it probably ended up being around that point, high point sixes, point six five maybe. Um, which, right. so you know, take, my, my yeah. threshold probably didn't change a whole lot from one year to the next, maybe, maybe a little bit, but not that much. So talk listeners through what is intensity factor, why does it matter, and how do we plan for, say, an Ironman or a half Ironman using that metric? Okay, so intensity factor is um, basically what percentage of your threshold you're right, you ride any given distance at. Uh, so if, if we're talking about Ironman, for a very, very good pro on a good day, 80% or 0.8 intensity factor is about what um, what they can hold or what we can hold, I guess, if, I'm, if I use myself as an example. Uh, and it's, it's, it's calculated on normalized power, so it's not average. It's what the true cost of that effort should, should be, which is normalized power probably getting a little bit no no no. explain the difference between Um, normalized normalized basically just uh is a a calculation to measure the true cost of an effort so if you rode at 200 watts for an hour super steady no no uh variation in the power um your normalized power would be 200 watts so it wouldn't change but if you rode at 100 watts and every two minutes rode at 350 watts or 300 watts. Um, so say you rode exactly 30 minutes at 100 and exactly 30 minutes at 300, your average would be 200, but your normalized power would be quite a bit more mm-hmm. because you've ridden 30 minutes at 100 watts. It's that beyond. concept of burning matches. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So... Um, the harder ride is definitely the one where you've ridden half the time at, at a higher output, but in terms of true true power average, it's no different. So in order to give you a better indication of the physiological cost of the ride, they normalise the power and they calculate it based on um, those harder efforts. So ideally in an Ironman or a longer distance race, there shouldn't be that much separation between your average and your normalized power because you should be riding pretty steadily. There shouldn't be huge jumps in power uh, or huge drops in power either. Um, so, uh, yeah, mm-hmm. intensity factor is, is basically how hard you, ca- you can ride or what percentage of your threshold can you, can you ride at. Um, and it's really great to use for long course because a uh, top-level professional male, 0.8. So, you know, like if, you, if you're an age group athlete riding at 0.8 or 0.85, you know you're, you're burning matches, essentially. Doing you're riding something wrong. too hard. Yeah, that's just going to set you up for a crappy run. Exactly. So I found my Kona file from that year. I rode it. 0.64 and my normalized power is 239 
I'd be interested to see, well, as you spoke about that decoupling, what your intensity factor was for that first 120 before you blew. 0.67. Okay, there you go. Not much higher. Yeah. Yeah. Back half, 0.6. So explain that concept of decoupling because I think that's super important. Yep. Um, It's basically uh, how, how much separation you get from between heart rate and power output. Um, so if your heart rate stays the same, but your power drops quite significantly, uh, it's, it's usually a sign that, um, things are going bad (laughs) and things are going pear shaped and, uh, that power to heart rate decoupling. So the power actually gradually getting less or your output becoming lower while your heart rate stays the same or sometimes actually increases uh, just means that aerobically you're still working just as hard but your legs physically cannot keep up and um, you get this big drop and separation between the two. Uh, so ideally in, in, a, in a race scenario, you don't have that big separation. Um, it usually comes from overbiking or burning too many matches uh, or riding beyond what your physiological capabilities are. Um, and I guarantee we've all had it yeah, uh, happen to us either in racing or training or both. Um, it's a metric that's usually analysed post-race. Yeah, yeah, totally. Um, yeah. Through training peaks and, and other um, softwares, for those who aren't aware. Um, what about decoupling in a, a training environment? Do you utilize that at all? Yeah, I do. Mm. Um, like we do, ben, so my coach and I have definitely looked at looked at it happen uh, in some key simulation sessions. Um, quite often, we've we've put it down just to fatigue, where we I'll go into a long simulation bike and fatigue just rears its ugly head after two hours, three hours, however long in it is, and we just get this massive separation of heart rate and power, power output drops significantly, heart rate doesn't, and RPE, so perceived effort, almost inevitably goes up. So it feels way harder than it should for the output that you're giving or that I'm able to achieve. So um, I might be well below what my power target was, but my effort level is actually the same, if not higher. Uh, And then it's just recognizing that, hey, fatigue's a factor here and... Um, you can't hide from it. So it, it might be we stop trying to uh, get the the benefit out of that session because I'm not physically able to ride it at the, the targets that we've set and it turns into a more aerobic-based endurance session. Um, or we just cut it all together and just recognise that I'm, I'm fighting the effects of fatigue yeah, from point. the prior training. So. It's a good it's a good way to see uh, how you're tracking physiologically. Like if that starts happening in in a session, and particularly a big one, if you've come off of quite a lot of training already, uh, it might be an indicator that hey, there's some fatigue here that we can't ignore, and maybe we need to scale it back and allow some proper recovery and adaptation to occur before we go and try and um, try and reach again for, for more gains. Yeah, there are um, 
other situations I see with age group athletes that might not be as experienced where they've got a limiter in their strength or power output, so mm. mus- muscular strength. Yeah, uh, and yeah. I see that decoupling even perhaps without uh, immense fatigue. So it's also a good indicator of, okay, there's my limiter. That's what I've got to focus on to improve. Totally. Um, but as you yeah. mentioned, that's where like data isn't everything because your perceived effort in that session, if you didn't report back on that, yeah. all we're going to see is numbers and not be able to marry that up and, and adjust for yeah. the fatigue. So for athletes, that's where that communication side comes in. Totally. And I should have mentioned actually that uh, that limiter and how you can identify the limiter with, with muscular output or leg strength because that's something that I battled with. I, I, I kind of, I almost forgot about it, truth, truth be told, because, you know, now it's more about that fatigue element. But in the past, it was aerobically, I was far more developed than what my legs could actually do. So, mm-hmm. um that was sort of how I uh, recognised that my le- like my my legs would always give up before my heart and lungs did, um, and so it was a focus to to bring up that that leg strength and and development through time because there's no way to shortcut it mm-hmm. uh, to actually catch up with my aerobic system. Um, and so, what and maybe did that you was focus something on that? that I already had always predisposed was to be you know quite good aerobically yeah um, but it, it did take a while for my body to actually catch up when did you focus on that strength element uh 20 oh, I, I did i focused on it between uh, that first iron man and kona the first time but definitely second year yeah. so 2016 speaking of uh, 2016 kona yeah you won yeah <laughs> <laughs> And you improved your run by eight minutes. On that yep. course and in those conditions is no easy feat. Talk us through how you feel that came about with all the work you did, training and, and data analysis-wise. Uh, so I think a big part of it, um, definitely a massive part of 2016 for me was was confidence. Uh, you know, I'd... I'd progressively developed I think the 2015 Kona result was a massive surprise I didn't have any kind of expectation on you came third yeah uh fifth Fifth. yeah which over there is is you get a podium you're up on stage you get a bowl it's quite a big deal which I had no idea um it is kind of like the story of my career so far (laughs) Uh, I just you know a bit oblivious a lot of the time to what these things actually maybe mean in the grander context and over time I've been able to kind of reflect on it and appreciate it for what it is but definitely at the time I did I had no idea like I didn't realize that it was such a big deal (laughs) um so the first year I actually didn't run too badly given how bad I felt on the last half of that bike I ran 316 uh I got I felt awful I remember just feeling like shit, I'm not going to be able to finish. This is, I've never felt this bad off the bike before. And I ran the first 10K, I was falling apart, it was too hot, like I was just really, really struggling. And I think this is something that has probably come out more and more the longer I've got into my career, but uh, it was probably started in this race. I actually 
started walking aid stations at 10 kilometers and I walked every single one until the finish of the marathon um, which over there is every mile so every k and a half virtually uh, I walked I started drinking coke which I'd never done before because I couldn't take on any of my liquid nutrition that I had um, and I just concentrated on breaking it down into one mile segments and by the time I got out of Alihi Drive, so about 16k in and up up the main hill to the highway, I started feeling good and mm-hmm. I started running really fast in between aid stations. Uh, and then that just that was the rest of my run kind of went like that. So it was like, all right, if I can, you know, basically if if the wheels completely fall off, which I sort of saw that they did. I can run 316, which is not that bad, really, in the grand scheme of things. It's, and, I think that's a great lesson for any athlete to understand that if things go badly or the wheels start to fall off or they completely fall off, it doesn't have to be the end of their day. No. There is, especially in long course, there's so much opportunity to turn that around like you've experienced, and that must have been a huge yep. confidence boost. Oh, a massive one because I'd had such a bad, bad run experience at Melbourne earlier that year. And where I was probably a little bit too rigid in, you know, not exploring um, or not taking steps to to problem solve, basically, Mm -hmm. you know, not trying cope, not walking aid stations, just uh, blindly following the plan that wasn't working clearly and, and suffering big time as a result. So I think I took a huge amount of confidence from that. Um, I have to say 2016, I got a new coach uh, after... 12, 12 months, more, 18 months of self-coaching. Um, just because I, I, I sort of got to Kona, had the result I had, and that was a, a bit of a catalyst, like, whoa, okay, I can actually, I'm yet to have a truly great Ironman performance in terms of what I'm capable of. I'd, I'd had some really great results in, in 70.3 racing, um, that were a bit more reflective of what I could actually do. And so it was uh, a little bit of just let's give the reins to someone else. Let's try a different method that maybe I would, wouldn't would be confident in giving myself, but I'd had the confidence in getting it from somebody else. And let's try and take my performance to a new level. Um, and so the best part of that was I went to New Zealand and, and put together that performance in an Ironman where I went 8.47, I think. I ran three hours. I basically had the day I knew I was capable of. Um, And that put me on the radar for for Kona that year in terms of people expecting me to do well there, but also me having the confidence that I could go out there um, and swim, bike and run. And if I put together a day I knew I could was capable of, I'd be very hard to beat. Hmm. Uh, so in terms of the running, um, I think I just developed, like every year I was getting better. I was getting more stronger as an athlete. I was seeing those changes physically manifest in how I looked, my body composition, um, and then just confirming all of what I was feeling in terms of the numbers. Uh, I remember distinctly getting to Hawaii this second year and running, in the first year running for the first 
probably two weeks sucked. Heart rate was way high. Just the heat knocked me around big time. Running slow, heart rate super high, like it felt really hard. And then that year I, I got there, got off the plane, did an hour run and just cruised like probably like I was in Melbourne still. No difference, no heart rate spiking, didn't feel hard. Um, and my whole prep went like that. My my big long rides on the course all felt really comfortable and I think I was just fit. Like I was really fit and I was really motivated. Yeah, and you still are. And you rode, you rode to an intensity factor of 0.7 that year um, yep. and then went on to run what time? 3.08. 3.08 in Kona. Yep. Amazing. Yep. Yeah, on a a hot day and a clear day, which over there is is, very brutal. Um, I think the the thing I did well again was, uh, you know, I I walked. I walked a lot. (laughs) Um, I probably ran, if you take out the walk breaks, I probably ran 250-something. Like, I was running very, very quickly Mm. in between walking. Um, But just, you know, I couldn't cool down. I couldn't keep going between aid stations because I would just overheat and my heart rate would start to go bananas. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, I just made sure I walked and I kept putting fuel in. Um, and that allowed me to, to maintain uh, my pace through the second half. Um, even though I was walking, I wasn't really slowing down. Uh, and, you know, I wasn't going through periods where I felt awful. Uh, so, um, I think, you know, that that race wasn't probably my fastest or my best in terms of output, but it was definitely the best performance I'd ever put together in terms of execution in within a race setting. So responding to other people and not getting um, not getting too worried about where I was or just in terms of how I managed myself throughout the day and how I problem solved my way through You race. raced your own race. Yeah. 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 And so I got like my bike file, I rode at 0.75 IF. Oh, okay. Yeah. So 261 was my normalized power. My heart rate was super low, like 145. Mm-hmm. And a, a big part of that was that um, I, I didn't ride too hard for 90K out of, the first half you learned uh, from your mistakes I was, I was riding solid and i felt super comfortable um and at the same time i was overtaking practically everyone so i sort of thought like i don't need to do anything more than this and by the time we got to the top of harvey so just over halfway um i was at the front of the race like i was mm. top top five age groupers overall um i, I met up with my coach now bevan and I made my demo who uh, I sort of picked up along the way and we rode together back to Kauai High and then I was able to just, um, because I hadn't really burnt any matches to that point, I just gradually peeled off the front and didn't see those two guys again. But uh, that analysis that Ryan did for Training Peaks, um, I was actually able to ride the last hour harder than I'd ridden any prior section of the course okay um, yeah, interesting which i'm sure you were motivated people. to uh 
to make sure you beat Bevan, who was like three age groups <laughs> above yeah, you. Yeah, exactly. Oh, I had I couldn't let him get one back on me after New Zealand. I beat him there as well. <laughs> yeah, and I know you like to stick that one in. I'll make sure he listens and hears that I again. Just, yeah, he, he's still salty about it, so I make sure I remind him. I also am so glad you spoke about walking because I certainly, as a coach, struggle to get athletes to embrace it and be okay with it, no matter you know. There are so many examples out there of professionals like yourself and top end age groupers, you, like planning for walk breaks, utilizing walk yeah. breaks, and with great success. Um, yeah. And I think, yeah, it needs we need to talk about it more so athletes don't have this negative connotation with walking. It's about what's more most efficient and yeah. what's going to get you across the line fastest, faster. Exactly, exactly. And yeah. I think it's that. Uh, if you can break down the process, you know, marath- a marathon's quite daunting on in itself, let alone at the end of at least six hours of racing. Um, more, well, quite a bit more for most people. Oh, but yes. <laughs> uh, yeah, like you say, you know, if you go into the marathon and think about 42 kilometres, it's too long, you know. You get spooked by that. Whereas if you think, oh, I've only got to run 2K to an aid station. Yeah. You can do that 20 times, no problem. Mm. It's like breaking down the massive swim set that's overwhelming. and Oh, yeah, it's, it's like, yeah, it's yeah. anything. Just break it down into what's manageable and next minute you're at the finish. Mm. Great approach. So from there, you transitioned into a professional career. I did. Um, and you made some changes to nutrition, yep. which I want to circle back to. So for now, I just want to go over some key to summarize all that stuff about numbers and data for listeners that are new to it, I wanna go through some uh, understandings or knowledge around TSS, so training stress, Mm -hmm. and chronic training load and how athletes can, uh, one, just be aware of it and how it plays into their their planning or their outcomes of their season because uh, a lot of coaches utilize it but I think athletes might follow a little bit blindly and it's a bit overwhelming. And I think, mm-hmm. you know, you and I have spoken about how we'd love athletes to be motivated by the numbers and understand some of what we do behind the scenes to help them uh, progress. Yeah. Uh, so do you want to start with CTL or TSS? Um, oh, either. Not fast. Let's go. Yeah. yeah, CTL. Um, start there. Um. CTL, I just I think about as uh, it, it stands for chronic training load, but basically you can think of it as your fitness over time. And um, in Training Peaks, there's a graph, your performance management graph, which shows you in the blue uh, the blue pyramids, peaks and troughs. That's CTL, and basically the higher the peaks go, the fitter you are, um, and and that's uh, calculated based off. Um, all your sessions so every training session you do that gets logged into training peaks um, will have an effect on your chronic training load or your fitness and that's most people's understanding of why we train it's to get fitter Uh, so I think that's a really easy way to think of of chronic training load Um, and basically if you're leading into a big event you want to get as fit as you can in a safe way so uh, it probably leads us on to TSS a little bit in that training stress. So TSS just stands for training uh, stress score. Um, 
which each individual session you do um, that contributes to your CTL or your chronic training load, your fitness, uh, will be will have a training stress score, which is what um, basically what is calculated to to say how hard it was or how much it's going to bump your fitness up. Um, or how much so the stress both, on the body, yeah. yeah. So, um, so CTL is a great one in terms of just tracking how you're going and, and uh, giving you a tangible data set and something visual that you can look at and, and that's representative of your fitness and it might just confirm how you're feeling. Yes, I feel really fit and I feel like um, I'm going really well at the moment and look at CTL and see it you know, relative to maybe where you were 12 weeks ago and see, okay, yeah, I am really fit. Um, so CTL is a great one. I think I've, I've used that a lot in terms of how I've planned uh, my race blocks, um, more so when I was doing it myself, but even just looking at it now and comparing Ironmans to each other and seeing just how far I've, I've come. Um, and then it's a great tool for planning taper as well. Yeah, I love it for that. And that's certainly the first point of call when I was introduced to CTL where I just I latched. I was like, right, I can't wait to use this with athletes. It's not a, a guessing game about should I do seven days taper, 10 days, yeah. eight days, yeah. and how are they feeling? Are they fresh? Are they tired? What do they need? Yeah. It's none of that guesswork. Um, yeah, totally. And I, yeah, I would have been the exact same. Yeah. I just that was my first thing. I was like, "This is so exciting uh, yeah. to have yeah, some confidence and concrete numbers." With the CTL, there are some parameters around what level of fitness is required for different distances or different levels, and I'll link to an article on Training Peaks that spells that out. So, a half Ironman, you might, as an age grouper, look to achieve a score of or fitness score of about eighty, and then Ironman's a hundred and above. So that gives you a bit of an idea of what you're working with and let's say your first yeah. half Ironman you do yeah uh, do quite well and your CTL is 80 next time around you're going to want to build on that so it's a great yeah. benchmark for yourself to know when was I at my fittest when was I doing well okay I'll work off that or what didn't work let's say you had a blowout of a, a race and you just weren't fit enough or strong enough okay well I need yeah. to know that next time it needs to be higher or different equally not strong enough or fit enough but maybe you can analyze the taper and see that oh actually i wasn't that fresh yeah um, so that ties into maybe the we, we other got metric. the taper wrong yeah um yeah. so that goes into tsb training stress balance so talk through that taper preparation and how you utilize tsb okay so um i think those there's those these three factors that all go hand in hand with the performance management chart, basically your fitness over time. There is, and I, I like to think of them this way because it simplifies it into terms that anyone can understand. But if CTL is fitness, TSB or training stress balance is uh, your form or your freshness, how fresh are you, how ready to perform are you? Uh, and the other one which we haven't mentioned, but um, goes very closely linked to form or freshness is acute training load so that's representative of how hard sessions have been how much intensity and how much then fatigue you have 
So if you have a lot of acute training load and therefore a lot of fatigue, your form or your training stress balance is going to be very, very low and uh, you're not that fresh, which it makes total sense. So I think in taper, the goal is to not have a huge drop in fitness in CTL to bring up your TSB from a negative number for most people during a training session or a training block, sorry, um, up into the positives. So bring your freshness up, bring your body into a state where it's ready to perform and you feel uh, almost like you're jumping out of your skin. Most mm-hmm. of us would know that feeling if we've been through a taper before. Um, and to, to, at the same time, reduce that fatigue level. So bring the pink line, which is a, a ATL or fatigue, um, to bring that down, bring your form up and keep as much fitness as possible. And the converse can be true too. Like the TSB can go too high into the positive where you're too fresh yeah. and you lose yeah. that fitness. Yeah, I've <laughs> done that before. So my first Kona 2015, yeah. I tapered too early. Mm. I got, I was 100% ready to go a week before the race. Oh dear. Yep. And I ended up with a TSB up in the 30s. Wow. And it was just too too far, um, yeah. which probably cost me a little bit. But ultimately, you know, at that stage of the preparation, and you see a lot of people get this wrong, uh, I knew that there was nothing more between a week out and race day that I could do yeah. in terms of progressing fitness or um, chasing what I'd missed or, or messed up with the taper. Uh, but unfortunately, you do see athletes out there, you know, dropping very fast, very long, hard runs or hard sessions two, three days out from the race. And it's just too little, too late. Yeah, um, agree. So, yeah, I, w- I was like, oh, well, you know, it, it, it's not the end of the world. It's certainly not ideal, but there's nothing I can do about it. So it is what it is. Yeah, if you and played I've, into I've that, from that. Yeah, if you played into that, it could have been worse. And oh, absolutely. to give context, uh, you're looking for a TSB of, say, no lower than a negative five, zero, or and up to like a ten. And everyone's different. Some athletes perform better with a little bit of fatigue in them, so closer to that minus five. Others need that freshness up to ten. And that's where experience and working with a coach and analyzing like you've done comes in handy to know what works best for you because those athletes that get too fresh and a little bit antsy, it doesn't work for them. Yeah. And that's been interesting yeah. to look at. Absolutely. All right, I think we've covered the data bases. Mm-hmm. Any other metrics you feel are important for athletes to look at and pay attention to, particularly in training peaks? Uh, no, I think if, if you can get a, a really concrete understanding of those, uh, you're well on your way. You can go, obviously, as we both know, you can go into a lot of depth yeah. um, with the data available. But uh, there's a, a great saying which... Um, you know I've said it to my athletes Bevan said it to me in the past you can there's paralysis by analysis you can get too deep and too focused and hyper focused on the numbers and uh, it can actually start negatively affecting your training because you're so paranoid by what you are or are not able to produce in terms of output and you know at the end of the day you you're always operating in training under some load, un- under fatigue. So yeah. you're never going to be at your best all the time. It's impossible. Um, 
So I think, you know, using the data for what it is and having a concrete understanding of what we've spoken about is a great first step, but also recognising that it's not the be-all and end-all. Yeah, important well. point to consider it as a whole. So we've got data as one piece, there's the perceived effort and feedback as a second and third piece. Yeah. Uh, and then there's the the outcomes as well. There's yeah, there's lots of things to look at. And we didn't speak about this, but it's important, I think, for people to know that even if they don't have a power meter, um, these intensity factors and, and training stress scores can be worked off heart rate um, yes. if you don't have a power totally. meter. Yeah. yeah. Uh, one thing we didn't touch on, I think it's important with CTL, athletes can get caught up in chasing and building that blue mountain in training peaks and just build, yeah. building fitness, building fitness. We need to be okay with seeing a pattern of ups and downs in, in CTL for adaptation. Do you want to speak to that a little bit? Oh, absolutely. So I've, I've got my last two years in front of me and that that's uh so it's up until the end of last year. So it includes Bustleton Ironman. Mm-hmm. Um, it's basically got four Ironman preps in it. And it goes from as high as 141 CTL yeah. to as low as 57. Yeah, that's, a, that's a, like psychologically to um, let that fitness go yeah. it is difficult but it's so integral I might if you're okay with it we might do a little screenshot of what that looks like and put it in the show notes yeah absolutely um, so yeah sorry continue yeah yeah so I think um, uh, essentially looking at it you cannot have a peak of 141 without a, a, a subsequent drop it's it's um, equal and opposite reaction you know you, you you're pushing your body to the limits to get to that level uh, and the reality of getting to that level is that you can't sustain it it's not maintainable mm. um, and trying to maintain a certain level of fitness will only lead to overreaching and and landing yourself in a hole in terms of fatigue and and overtraining um, and as a as a result of that your performances are going to suffer which is a great uh, point as to how we can utilize data to help prevent burnout and overtraining in athletes. And I think absolutely. this is a skill that many more athletes, uh, sorry, coaches need to address. Yeah, to I think that. like it's one thing to be negatively affecting your performance, but the reality is it's not even that. It's it, it becomes um, a negative effect on your life and your health, uh, your enjoyment of the sport. Um, and, and burnout will, will turn people away from triathlon and it's absolutely crucial that you have balance with what you're doing. Yeah, that's um, that's like the core of my passion in this industry is just shifting, totally, shifting totally. that norm and I know you're on board with that, which is why I love chatting to you and obviously have faith in your, your coaching process, which is brilliant. Um, so, yeah, we need to be able to let that CTL go and you know with adaptation so those recovery days and recovery weeks are integral i think athletes fight that i've definitely heard of athletes lying and fudging their recovery weeks or turning their watch off and doing more than what's on there um, which is so counterintuitive Uh, i understand the psychological hurdle to that uh, but that's definitely one of the things i see as a a barrier to progression totally i think if if athletes had a a pretty solid understanding of what we've spoken about with with their data and their numbers and how it um, how it relates in the grander scheme of things. Then they're also going to understand that recovery is the most important element of training. And um, 
they'll they'll see and feel the benefits of the downs as much as the ups with training and uh the more i can certainly for me as a coach the more i can help and guide my guys on understanding what they're doing and what the purpose of it all is um the more invested and the more responsible they are as athletes and that the they've just they take control themselves mm. um they become self-sufficient and they don't need me outside of just their program uh you know they they become very very well educated i guess yeah and you become uh, that and confident to bounce ideas off and exactly get some reassurance. Um, ultimately yeah. everyone knows them, their own body the best oh yeah uh you know, I know my numbers and my performance intimately better than my coach does. Yeah. But what I'm able to bring with for him is, um, you know, that knowledge of myself I can give to him so it better informs his process and he can better get the best out of me. I, know, know, I, I can't do it by myself. No, and I don't think many athletes could say that, that they know their numbers better than their coach. Um, from my experience, um, yeah, no, I, probably not. And but, I, you know, I'm probably an exception in that sense. Yeah, but I think it it's a great model because it's definitely worked for you. Um, it means that you can have a more collaborative approach with your coach. Yep. Um, Absolutely. Which was one of my questions actually, because Bevan McKinnon is a, a fellow data nerd and uses the numbers deeply. So with that transition to him, was there anything additional that you learnt um, that was really key for you? Oh, through him I mean great question I think nothing that jumps out as being super obvious all I can probably say is that he's taken me to a completely new level of understanding first and foremost which has led to performance but um, has made me a significantly better coach as well mm. um, I think a huge part of what Bevan was able to bring for me is uh, you know, things that were not tangible in training peaks. Mm. Um, his understanding of me as a person and how to get the best out of me, I suppose. Um, and and then I guess from a data point of view, uh, using some of these metrics to identify weaknesses. Um, the obvious one for me is the swim, but you know, outside of that recognizing that uh, we needed to maybe increase my bike threshold um, not because it was low but because I had the potential to raise it and why why shouldn't we yeah <laughs> you know I went from being having a threshold that put me into competitive almost now to being you know world class and that's the sort of steps that I wanted to take under Bevan and that we've been progressively taking in terms of my performances. Yeah. Um, so, a, you know, a huge part, it comes from the data, but I think even more so just from his and I and our relationship and how we do work collaboratively and um, it is this open and constant feedback loop between him and I. And that's kind of what I encourage with my athletes that, you know, I don't know what you don't tell me. Yeah, so that's huge. You We're can, not mind readers. You cannot readers. tell me enough, basically. Yeah. I don't care if it seems trivial. Just say it. Yeah, 
I mean, it's um, exactly the same. And athletes say, I don't want, I don't want to be pain or I don't want to be high maintenance. I'm like, I, I want you to be high maintenance, quote unquote. But not that yeah, you yeah. are, but just give me it all because I can't read your mind. And, yeah, um, yeah. you know, a, a coach, well, certainly I know you would and I would, we'll set the boundaries if, if you're telling us too much or invaluable yeah, information. Yeah. We'll steer you towards the right stuff. Um, yeah. But, yeah, definitely keep those lines open as an athlete. For sure. I, I think one thing that I, I really want to touch on on that is, um, and this is something I went through myself this last year and a half with Bev, uh, but I've also had it with my own athletes and myself, um, that you cannot, there's no measurement for emotional mm-hmm. and mental fatigue in training peaks and the stresses that come with with life, life, not from training, um, and ha- just how much of an effect they can have on uh, your performance, your fitness, your well-being, your mental and physical well-being equally. So um, unless you're having these conversations, we as coaches don't know. You know, we can't plan for an upheaval emotionally if we don't know what's happening. Um mm-hmm. And I'd certainly speaking from first-hand experience because uh, as I progressed as an athlete, my life got significantly busier in terms of work and uh, external stresses. And it, it, it took a huge toll at times yeah. on my my training, basically. Um, and it was something that Bevan and I had to be open about, had to discuss and had to plan for and allow for. Otherwise, I wouldn't be sitting here. Where you are, yeah. Coming off of performances that I've had because it just wouldn't have happened. Yeah, I think it's important to communicate. Just even if you're not comfortable sharing all the emotional ups and downs of life, but say sharing, let's say you normally work 40 hours, but next week's due to uh, you're working 50. That's really important for coach to know and program around and needs to be respected. Um, I work with a lot of shift workers, so the eight-day cycles of those shifts mean that the load is different each week because the hours of work are different and i think with age groupers we need to respect what's going on in life because that's number one and it's not here's your program work your life around that it's like what's going on in life and then we we try we program around that um and we spoke speak a lot on the podcast and holistic endurance about the cortisol stress hormone and cortisol stress response doesn't know the difference between a training session and an emotional upheaval it's the same physiological response on your body which is going to lead to inflammation so that's a a great point and uh, i'm so glad that you've had that experience yourself and have taken that step further in the coaching relationship i'm sure that's paid off greatly yeah yeah all right coming back yeah coming back to favorite topic the metabolic efficiency and nutrition for which you've had uh, an equally in-depth and long journey. I know we've been chatting for ages. Have you still got time to chat? Oh, yeah. Sweet. Um, So talk us through what nutrition looked like for you originally when you started this sport, and then we'll we'll talk through those key changes that you've made and and the differences that it's impacted on your performance. Okay. Um, uh, Nutrition in terms of overall or race yeah day-to-day nutrition day-to-day okay um i think prior to triathlon i was uh someone who didn't eat particularly well very western diet um 
a lot of processed food, a lot of bread, cereal, those types of things were, would have made up the core of my diet. Um, I'd sort of made uh, some positive steps in the right direction before I got into the triathlon, like probably in the year prior, uh, where I lost a little bit of weight and I changed my body composition um, and started to just implement a better diet based around more whole foods or, or vegetables and um, things that are a little bit more natural. There's that key word, vegetables. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, but I definitely had a, a poor diet, you know, uh, massive sweet tooth, which I haven't kicked. I still do have that. Um, I don't think I'll ever lose it. But I just, I think food was never something I'd given that much thought to. Uh, and it wasn't until triathlon and then particularly as my performance has improved that I actually started to pay more attention to it um, and started to think that, you know, this could be a limiter for me. Um, poor diet, poor nutrition could be severely impacting my ability to perform and what do I need to change and what do I need to learn more so uh, in order to make those changes. Um, so yeah, I, I had a pretty shitty diet, you know, I, I didn't, it, it probably wasn't inherently terrible where, you know, not talking about drinking litres of Coke every day and eating McDonald's and those things, but um, equally I wasn't eating enough. Not nutrient-dense food. No, no, yeah. certainly not. And, and like I said, building, you know, having wheat bix every day, cereal, having a lot of bread, uh, there's really, no, there's not a They're lot of empty nutrients calories. in it. Yeah. Simple yeah. high carbohydrate food, which I just didn't need. I'm sure you were hungry all the time. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So when you started to make changes, what were the first things that you implemented? First thing I ever tried was cutting out sugar. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and just by sugar, I mean processed sugar. So table sugar, anything that's coming in. Uh, drinks or foods highly processed or added um, and that made a massive difference I noticed it just in my mood my uh, uh, no I just lost those really big up up and downs throughout the day um, I wasn't hungry as much uh, I just felt more even in terms of um, my mental state and did you find uh, that those results were realized fairly rapidly yeah, so that only took, you know, I noticed that within a few days and after mm. a couple of weeks, I felt like a completely different person. It's very cool. Yeah. Yeah, you um, would have been holding on to a lot of inflammation that yeah. couldn't be released. Yeah. I think that that was a massive one for me. It's still probably the one that I try uh, to be the most diligent on because um, sugar, like I said, I've got, a, I've got a sweet tooth, so it's sometimes easy for me to make bad decisions with, with that. Um but then in the last two years, I've probably moved uh, a big way in towards more of a whole foods, higher fat, lower carb content diet in, in with the goal of being more fat adapted for long course racing um, yeah. and being able to race off less carbohydrate and not bonk, um, not, you know, not, not need it basically. Oh, yeah, which was... 
so pivotal. So when we got together uh, last year, you did a metabolic efficiency test um, at rest. I've got the numbers here. You, at that point, were burning 74% fats at rest and 26 of carbohydrates at rest. So for those unfamiliar with the concept of fat adaptation, anywhere from 70 to 90% fats at rest is ideal and would be indicative of someone following a lower carbohydrate, higher fat nutrition um, plan. Whereas a sugar burner, you're going to see someone burning 50 to 70% carbohydrate at rest, whereas Nathan's only 26, um, yeah, which is I huge. Yeah, that's probably improved too since. I'd say so. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. for sure. Um, so those changes we saw absolutely made a difference to your physiology, but there was further refinement to make. So after that test, what sort of changes and things have you done to progress you even further? Um, so day to day, I think we we focused on, uh, I, 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 like it seems, it, it seems a very cliche word to use in the current climate, but mindful, just being mindful of what I was eating and when. Uh, and that was more the issue for me that we identified when we spoke was it, not, it wasn't that my diet was that bad, but I wasn't actually thinking about what I was eating, when I was eating it, how it was related back to my training. So um, we started to, to play around with uh, fasting, going fasted into training, especially in the morning, first thing. Um, maybe it was uh, no breakfast and just having um, a coffee with uh, some added fat, so uh, MCT oil or, or butter something like that yeah um and then post training getting the right fuel on board something that uh had a little bit of carbohydrate to replenish what i'd used um but that was nutrient dense quality uh vegetables you know eggs was a good one uh things like that and just being aware of what i was eating and when i was eating it which i hadn't you know, I'd sort of given some thought to, but I hadn't really tried and been diligent with. Yeah, it's definitely uh, the most common thing I see um, in terms of people that have already adopted, say, LCHF or Whole Foods and they're not quite getting the results they're after. It usually yeah. comes down to nutrient timing and getting the right level of carbohydrates in around training um, and a lower amount when we're outside of the window or, or not training. Um, yeah. And for yourself and other professionals that are training two to three times a day, sometimes that can be logistically quite important to to ensure recovery the next day and for age groupers alike if you've been on the bike for six hours on a saturday your nutrition needs to look very different to the tuesday where you did a two-hour wind trainer yeah yeah or even you know one week's training is 15 hours and the next is 18 nutrition should look different yeah based yeah. on and fluctuate with that volume and you know adaptation week you probably don't need to eat as much and i think that was the change that you saw is just being more specific with it yeah we um temporarily and i don't know if you've continued but we we did cut out some inflammatory dairy products just to get your immunity built up as well so if someone's experiencing um 
poor immunity and susceptible to travel and not recovering very well that's often an action step we take just to reduce that inflammation even if they're not dairy intolerant and then slowly reintroduce yeah did you notice a benefit from that yeah so i actually don't have that much dairy at all anymore Just Um, i don't drink milk i don't have yogurt i don't yeah yeah like hardly any and Mm. the only thing that i'll have occasionally is cheese um it's usually something hard anyway or like a or a soft cheese like brie or or something like that and it's important to clarify we don't just strip out this stuff we add add things in first so it's adding in the anti-inflammatory fats and the high caloric intake so that reduction in those um, that food group, for example, doesn't yep. impact you and um, particularly mood and energy. Um, yeah. No one likes a hangry athlete. No, no. I think the big one was milk. Actually, cutting that out made a huge difference. And now if I ever have it, I feel sick yeah. <laughs> straight, straight away. I remember you being a little bit apprehensive about the uh, coconut milk latte situation. <laughs> oh, no. So because my, my partner's lactose intolerant, she's hasn't drunk milk for 20 years so um i just was like all right i don't mind almond milk in my coffee uh but if i i know what i'm like if i just stick to it for a month it'll become normal yeah and then i won't want milk anymore sure enough that's what's happened i never order don't ever feel like i need it Mm. um i don't even like the taste anymore (laughs) i'm exactly the same um And then there's the shift. So that was metabolic at rest and your day-to-day that obviously impacted ability to – because, you you know, you don't, you're not quote-unquote just a professional athlete. You have a job and you coach athletes, which is a, a big load. And so sleep, nutrition, and all these factors were so important for you. Yeah. Um, and, no, and the immunity, like there's no point getting sick in the peak of your build four weeks out from a race, is there? No, no. <laughs> that wasn't helping you definitely not no um but then it also impacted that race nutrition strategy so do you want to talk about the transition from what your race nutrition used to look like to what it is now and since the metabolic test absolutely so i think that was more the missing link for me in terms of performances particularly in ironman um uh, what we discovered through the metabolic efficiency testing was that uh, I was having way too much yeah. carbohydrate for what I was actually using. Um, so in the past, I'd gone off of uh, very simple, you know, one gram per kilogram of body weight per hour, and I'd maybe gone at the extreme end of that even a little bit more. So I was having uh, at least a gel, so 30 grams, probably every 20 minutes, every 25 minutes maybe. That is so much uh, for your guts to absorb. Like, it's just, yeah. it's insane. Yeah. And, uh, it, and that's in an Ironman. So I was, I was having 60, 70 to 90 grams an hour. And by the end of the bike, I was just a mess. You know, guts, not that great. I was having diaphragm issues because I was just too full and I hadn't absorbed anything or enough. Um, and then... I'd get onto the run, I just wasn't able to stomach gels or anything really, and I'd go through, you know, maybe the first hour without having anything, and then it was like starting to go too far the other way in getting depleted uh, and having to switch to Coke and riding the the sugary up and downs of, of Coke for 
25k mm. um so a huge eye-opener was that uh, I was having too much and I sort of had that feeling but I was a little bit scared to try which is having less totally understandable when you dedicate your life and your income to a yeah. certain performance yeah. and so getting a metabolic efficiency t- test which I'll link everyone to gave us some data for Nathan to know at a given wattage how many carbohydrates he, or calories he was burning per hour and then we just yeah. aimed to replace 50% of that for his plan yeah. uh, so that brought us to closer to the 50 60 grams an hour mark as opposed to your 90 yeah. You first yeah. tried that in Port Mac Ironman last year, yeah? Yes, I did. How did that go? It was yeah, it was it was really good. It was going very very well until I punctured um, <laughs> about twenty or fifteen k from the end of the bike. Uh, I'd had no real flat spot in terms of energy. Um, I was feeling fine in my in my stomach as well, which was and. When I got off the bike, I felt pretty good, which I hadn't really had before. Um, so it was, it was definitely a massive step in the right direction. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was just unfortunate that that race didn't really go to plan, so I wasn't able to kind of truly try it yeah. uh, in that proper race scenario. Um, Even logistically, I'm thinking about the weight of the gels and the fuel and negotiating all of that on your bike it just simplifies matters greatly yeah yeah um it sure does 30 grams less an hour over eight hours that's a lot less fuel yeah and so like the input the other thing too that's my bike yes my run input was even less again you know 40 40, 45 grams an hour yeah um which, you know, I'd never, I'd always tried to take way more than that, which is way too much. Um, and then I've, I've gradually refined it from there, from that initial plan we did for Port. And then uh, in Basso, it went really well, didn't it? Uh, New Zealand was New Zealand. perfect. Um, Bustleton, I maybe stuffed up a little bit just with salt because it was so hot. Yeah. Which far as will do that, yeah. Yeah, I definitely cooked it with the water as well. I just... Too much. Um, uh, just missed. Well, I didn't miss any aid stations, but I just did. I just underestimated how hot it would be and and how much water I'd have to take. Uh, and I ended up running out and stopping at an aid station on the bike, which I've never done before. Mm. Um, about twenty k from home, so I could grab like three or four bottles and fill everything up, stuff them down my jersey, like the whole lot, and I still ran out before T2. Had you not done that, though, your run would have been a very different story. Oh, exactly, yeah. I absolutely had to do it, like no question. Um, And it didn't really affect the outcome anyway. Uh, But I definitely, you know, I suffered for not um, being a little bit more aware of how how the weather would play a role, Mm. Um, maybe just not giving it enough enough credence enough thought yeah and so to give listeners a perspective on how that's been possible for nath what he's uh he's what's called a crossover point so the point at which he burns more carbohydrates than fats occurs at a heart rate of around 151 well that was last year it's probably improved now yeah and looking at your data from your challenge melbourne last week like that's the heart rate nath sits at for his bike leg so He's barely needing to tap into his carbohydrate 
reserves um, at that heart rate, which is golden. And then Ironman, it's going to be a similar story. So it's a two-edged sword. Yes, you become metabolically efficient at rest and you're more of a fat burner, but then it's at this. The second element to that is becoming more of a fat burner at intensity, uh, which certainly when I was in university, they we were told that that wasn't possible. But science is definitely showing us now, and I'm seeing it with athletes. It is 100% possible to burn uh, a higher percentage of fats than carbs at, at intensity. Yeah. Which is golden because that fat, t- sorry, the carb tank will run out. The fat tank doesn't run out. Yeah, yeah. And endurance um, at the sports, as you've learnt, um, that's a winning formula. Yeah, definitely. Very cool. All right, any wisdom or parting words you'd like to leave everyone with? Um, no, I think we covered, we covered most of yeah. what, what we wanted to talk about. I think, um, you know, hopefully people get something out of, out of that and I think it probably just gives a little bit of insight into... Uh, just how much depth a lot of oh how much depth you can go into for one but just then how necessary that is to to perform at at a pro level Mm -hmm. Um, it's not just a matter of being fast you've got to be very very switched on in terms of your entire uh, your your life Mm -hmm. and how you build it around your performance because just being good in the pool on a bike and running is not enough. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I hope people can see that transition and, you know, get something out of what I've done and steps I've taken to transition from age group to professional and, yeah. and make it a re- relatively success, successful one so far. Relatively, I'd say very. But, yes, your journey is uh, brilliant. It's a great learning curve for many people. And, uh, you know, you're speaking to that transition of age group to pro. And I know for those age group out there, age groupers that aren't looking to become pro, this information is still really valid because, let's be honest, when you bonk, or a race doesn't go to plan and you don't get to achieve your or express your optimal potential on a given day, there's no fun in that. So I know a lot of people are in this sport for fun, but planning and being strategic and doing the best you can in terms of preparation with these sort of metrics will set you up to have a good day and actually enjoy it Uh, because, yeah, too often we see the opposite. Yeah, I I, I totally agree. And there's... Ultimately, it should be fun for everybody, you know, even as a professional. I'm not trying to make money out of the sport. It's not about that. Um, it's where your limits are. I, I yeah. do it because I love doing it, and yeah. it is fun, and I do enjoy it. Uh, and I think, I want, you know, it's something I want everyone to to have, to, to get from, from their racing, get what they want out of it. Um, and like you say, all these metrics can help you uh, make the most of of your your racing and how much time and effort you put into it um, because it is time consuming it it is a lot of effort it's a lifestyle for a lot of people uh, so you know you want it to be enjoyable <laughs> couldn't agree more that's certainly going to keep people in the sport long term um, yep. as opposed to burning Absolutely. out or you know falling out of love with it within one to two years 
Yeah. Which is uh, not what we want to see. So you're racing Port Mac Ironman next week, which is probably when this episode will come out. So do you want to let listeners know where they can find you online and track your progress? Yeah, yep. Um, So Instagram's probably the best one. It's just Nathan Shearer. Um, I can be a little bit hit and miss on there. (laughs) We'll uh, you, you can find me coaching through T Zero Multisport. Um, I've I've started with them this month, so uh, you can go through the website, which is T Zero Multisport dot com, and you'll you'll be able to find me under there. Super exciting! Um, and then Facebook, you know. Yeah. And if you see me at Port, don't be afraid to say hello. <laughs> He's the one in the trucker hat, the funky glasses, and lots of tats. I usually don't look like I'm there to race and then, until you see me on the race course. He's there for a party, that's for sure. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> awesome. Thank you so much, Nate. And Thanks, um, I look forward to getting you on again because there's so much more we can uh, dissect. Awesome. Thank you. Cheers.